So almighty Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we would hear and not be complacent with this opportunity. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Please do hunt down that Hebrews passage again on your device or in your Bible. In the church's Bible, again, it's page 1210. Page 1210, and that's where we're going to be in that uh, paragraph or two from sentence 32 uh, to sentence number 30. Let me speak personally for a moment, if I may, to you. Over the last few weeks, as we've looked at Hebrews chapter 11, I've been haunted by this passage. Without doubt, every now and again, when you preach regularly, and often, every now and again, there is a passage which seems to come out of the Bible with its teeth bared, raging and furious, attacking your complacent faith. And that has been my experience of of Hebrews chapter 11, absolutely haunted by it. I think I've acknowledged and admitted before that when we started our series in Hebrews, perhaps 18 months or so ago now, uh, one of the chapters I knew least about and was least understanding why God would have put it in his Bible and least knew what to do with was Hebrews chapter 11, yet God has turned that absolutely on its head. I think I've had one of the most uh, profound experiences of God speaking in a precise and cutting way. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, it says in Ephesians 6. I think I've had one of the most profound experiences of that over the last three or four weeks looking at Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason for that is because of the stark contrast that exists between God's vision and understanding of what it means to follow Jesus as it's recorded here in Hebrews 11 and my understanding of what that is. The shocking contrast and how emasculated and puny and pathetic is my vision of what it means to follow Jesus compared to the radical, sacrificial, all-giving, non-surrendering desire for Christ that is reflected in Hebrews chapter 11. It has absolutely blown me away. These are not actually heroes of the faith as it's so often described. They are not. They are ordinary women and ordinary men of faith. What is extraordinary is what faith is when you trust Jesus. These are ordinary people who with a trust in God do things that blow our minds. We call them heroes. I call them heroes because of how placid and pathetic is my understanding of following Jesus. Okay, I've got a little bit excited. Okay, but this has been so, so eye-opening for me. That there's a man here, Noah who builds a boat in a desert, in a desert drought, in fact. And he spends 10 years doing it with all his friends and colleagues mocking him. He drags his children into that. Can you imagine what their schoolroom was like? They were the bullied weirdos, weren't they? As he makes his children build the boat, all because God has said, do it. So he asks no other questions. Well, it's never rained here, God. I'm in a desert on a hill. Yeah, no questions. God says, I do. The story of Abraham blows my mind. A father ready and willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But what blows my mind more is Isaac, the son, is a grown man, stronger and faster than his father, who is an old guy. He carries sufficient wood for his own body to be burnt on his back. This is a man, friends. And because God says, be willing to be sacrificed as a loved son, Isaac says, okay. Is that not amazing? Is that not amazing? And yet it is not that these were heroes. 
It's not that Abraham was anything special. He was a doubter and a grumbler. What about Sarah? So her menopause is 10 years in her past. She describes her own husband when it comes to his ability to, as as good as dead. Yeah? Yeah? Popsicle sticks. As good as dead. Yeah? But God says, you're going to have a baby. And so what does she do? Okay, I'll get the crib ready. I'll paint the nursery walls. She ignores all the doctors. Going, Love, it's not going to happen. Yeah? Because God's voice, faith in God is what makes them extraordinary. And this passage, you can tell this morning I got excited in the first service. I don't know if my voice is going to make it for another 20 minutes. Okay? Yeah. But this passage, I want to say it again, they are not heroes. They are a description to the original Hebrews all those years ago who first received it. It's just a description of what they need to be like, ordinary followers of Jesus. Ordinary followers of Jesus. And this passage over the last few weeks has haunted me because of the stark contrast between God's vision of what a follower of Jesus should look like compared to my sedate, tranquilized, polite idea. How tame I am. How tame I am. How many questions of how do I not rock the boat? How do I not upset people? What does it mean to be sensitive to culture and society around? How many of those questions, and they just dilute, they just dilute, they just dilute, they just dilute, until you're left with this rancid, tasteless... You know what happens when you tame a wolf? Do you know what happens when you tame a wolf? You get a pug. That's what happens when you tame a wolf. If you tame a wolf... Ultimately, you get a pug. Now, I personally have nothing against pugs. If you own a pug, I'm sure he's cute and cuddly. But what is a pug, friends? Let's be honest. It just looks cute. That's it. It can't breathe. I mean, it can't even breathe properly. All it can do is snot. Have you seen that with pugs? They just snot. Yeah, projectile snot. And they look cute, and that's it. They can't run. They can't breathe. They can't do anything. But somehow I feel I've become a pug. Like I do. Oh, Alex is safe. Alex won't bite. Yeah. Alex won't make me feel uncomfortable. Alex won't be dangerous. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, really. It'll take more than a cup of water, but we're all right. Yeah. How did I become a pug? Because actually it's dawned on me that when you choose to follow Jesus, that is the key that finally unlocks the cage and releases a wolf. And somehow, we have made it the thing that tames us and restrains us and makes us safe. What a shockingly unbiblical word, safe, is. Following Jesus was never meant to be safe. It was meant to be dangerous and radical and out there and unpredictable without any knowledge of what might happen to your life. Oh, you know God would achieve his purposes, but you don't know what that means for you. You're just going to follow, you're going to follow, you're going to follow. For for a while, I've had this question that only became clear to me listening to a sermon that Chrissy recommended uh, to help me in preparation. I had this question for years of, in the Old Testament, God always gave Israel the victory when they went to war. Yeah? If you read the stories, one of the things, you just know the end of the story. 
Once you've read three battles in the Old Testament, you know how the rest are going to end. Israel always wins. God always wins. So I had this question. When you read about the soldiers in Israel, why were they always so hesitant to go into battle? Why were they always saying, no, 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 don't want to fight? You know the story. You're going to win. Why are you so hesitant? Well, it was only listening to this sermon that Chrissy recommended that the answer, 15 years after I asked the question, became clear. Because God never promised that soldier would survive. He promised Israel would win. He promised that God's purposes would be achieved and he would be glorified, but he makes no promise to the individual soldier that you will not be murdered, paralysed, bruised, battered. He made no promise to the wife and children at home that that man would come back. And that, friends, is the Christian life. God will achieve his purposes. He will be glorified, but he makes no promise to me. I could be a slaughtered one on the battlefield. I could limp home just making it and even be a deserter. He makes no promise to the individual because he's looking not for pugs, but wolves. Wolves who are untamable, unstoppable, who do simply what God says they are to do. And where we've reached in Hebrews now, this last little section, is the tale, the tales of those who have lived an untamed life, but whose story is never told. It's actually the story of most of us. Most of us are not going to have our story told like Abraham or or Isaac or Sarah or Enoch or all these named ones. Most of us are going to fall into the category of what's talked about here, sentence 32, of those I do not have time to tell about. That's most of us, isn't it? I feel like that. Yeah? I feel like I do not have time to tell about Alex, Tony, Ashley, and yet, right at the heart of it is that what it is what it means to follow Jesus, to be there. Let me see if I can illustrate it before we get into the passage with another little story, right? When I was straight out of university, I spent a year working for a church in Cambridge. I'd become a Christian just a year or so before. I, I'm always competitive. I felt I had to catch up with all the Christians who were born and bred. So I did this like year intense course, apprenticeship it was called, for a church called Holy Trinity in Cambridge. And they had a hall out the back, and it was called the Henry Martin Hall. So I'm like, well, who is Henry Martin? I figured he was the donor who'd paid for it. And the exchange got his name on the, on the plaque. Henry Martin, who is he? Well, Henry Martin was born in 1781 down in Cornwall, uh, near Truro. He went to Truro Private School, Grammar School, and then he went from there up to Cambridge, and he got a first-class degree from St. John's at Cambridge University, clearly high-talented, highly intelligent guy, and was on track to become a lawyer, especially since his father had died. He had brothers and sisters to look after, and he wanted to go become a lawyer. Then he walked into Holy Trinity Church, this church in Cambridge, and he heard a preacher called Charles Simeon, who actually was the the preacher and pastor there for 51 years. And he was so impacted by hearing this sermon of Charles Simeon, particularly the story that Charles Simeon told of another man called William Carey, who'd been one of the very first missionaries to go to India, that there and then Henry Martin chose to dedicate his, his life to God. He spent a couple of years as an understudy to Charles Spurgeon there in Cambridge. And then in 1806, he went to India as chaplain for the East India Company. 
He arrived in India later in 1806. And over the next six years, he translated the New Testament into three different languages, learning the languages from scratch beforehand, three different languages, Urdu, Persian, and one of the local dialects. He planted multiple churches, and he repeatedly met with various royal families in different tribal areas of, of, of uh, India and saw many of them converted as entire families. In 1812, six years after he first arrived in India, he died of a fever, age 31. That's a life, isn't it? In India today, there is the Henry Martin Institute that celebrates, remembers, and promotes work similar to his. And in Cambridge, based out of the university, is the Henry Martin Trust, both of which remember his name across the world. But did you know six other men went before him? He was the seventh chaplain to the East India Company. Six came before. Six of them died either on the voyage or within a month of landing in India. Who's commended by God? Henry Martin or the six that so we don't even know their name? This morning is about the six. This morning is about the six, not about the one. It's about the six commended, delighted in, and celebrated by God, even though we do not have time to tell about them. Is that your life? Is that your life? Let me show you this from the passage. Would you put your heads down and have a look with me? There's three particular sentences here in the passage which I think help us to understand and grapple with this. The first is right there, sentence 32. We've already laboured it. Sentence 32, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about, and he mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jethro, and David, Samuel, the other prophets. He's not got time to talk about them. And then most of these Old Testament characters who follow are unknown, un unnamed. They're there to remind us that holding fast, persevering, keeping going is never glamorous. And it's never been glamorous. And it's not about having your name in lights. It's about standing firm for Jesus. Most of our serving of Jesus, friends, is done in a hidden way. Most of our serving of Jesus is forgotten and unknown and uncelebrated. Most of it is what we would call plodding. I'm just plodding. I'm just holding it together. It's mundane and unexciting and dull and unfruitful and grey and hard and graft and uphill and slow. It's about being one of the six and not the one, but one of the six who keep going. I don't know if you feel that when it comes to your parenting, do you? <laughs> do you ever feel parenting is uncelebrated? I do not have time to tell about it, or perhaps like me, you think, oh, please don't tell about it. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard. And so, can I say it? Boring. Yeah, is it? Is it? When your seven-year-old comes home from school, wants to talk about a snail for seven hours. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How many times have I unloaded a dishwasher in my life? I'd eat off paper plates. I don't know why we need a dishwasher. Right? But parenting and the domestic side of life. Or, or, or what about if your struggle is with depression or anxiety? That low-level crippling kind that's maybe not diagnosed but, but is just a grey shadow in so many of your days. Or, or the more clinical variety that can be so crippling. We do not have time to tell of how amazing and incredible your faith in Jesus is at that moment. Do not have time to tell. 
What about those, that journey? And actually, the blessing and the cursing of medical advancement is more and more we know when the journey ends, at least within a month or two, don't we, post a diagnosis. Past generations were, were saved from that blessing or that curse. Now, I don't know what that's like, but so often we don't have time to tell of your amazing steadfastness, of finding, trying to find Jesus within that. And on the list goes, and on the list goes. The point is, most of serving and living for Jesus, for most of us, is not being a Henry Martin, but is being one of the six. It's being one of those ones that he does not have time to tell about. That's where most of us are called to serve most of the time. Let me pull out the second sentence, though, of the three. The second sentence is down in sentence 39. Would you look at it with me? Have a look. See what it says, sentence 39. These were all, what's the word? Commended. These were all commended for their faith. Isn't that incredibly encouraging, isn't it? So yours is hidden, and yet all of serving of Jesus is commended. No one else has time to talk about it, but Jesus is going to be talking about it all the time when you get to see him. No one else has time to celebrate it and lift it up. The six are forgotten. Only Henry Martin has space in our minds, and yet all are commended by God. In fact, if we look at the passage really carefully, like I tried to show you when I read it, you'll see that all are commended by God. Whatever perceived success or failure comes from it. Whether it seems successful, our faith in Jesus, or whether it seems a total flop and failure, all are commended by God. See, it's not the outcome of faith in Jesus that Jesus is looking for. It is faith in Jesus. Not the outcome of faith. Not whether faith breeds a marriage that is beautiful and wonderful, or your marriage dissolves and breaks down in painful divorce. It's not the outcome of faith. It's that you stood for Jesus in the midst of it. Let me show you that from the passage. See the first group, sentence 33 to 35. It's all glamorous, all victorious. I mean, it's brutal and it's bloody, but at least they survive. Look, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their their dead, raised to life again. It's all Henry Martins, isn't it? But then look how it turns, middle of sentence 35. But there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill, ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended. Do you see the all? Not just the first group. It is not the outcome of faith, but faith which God commends. See, it is not, friends, whether you manage to raise children who are in belief and behaviour, such outstanding models of Jesus followers, you wonder if they're the second Messiah, or whether actually your children are wayward and self-destructive and leave you on your knees in tears at the choices they've made. If you stood for Jesus, it is that that he commends, not the, not the outcome of faith, 
but that you had faith in him in the midst of that. It's not whether your giving is generous and sacrificial and gives you so much delight and thrill that you can be so generous or whether your giving is a fight every day not to hoard and hold for yourself in greed. It's not the outcome of faith. It is that you had faith in that moment. It's not whether your grief is rock solid, certain in the hope that Jesus has given you for your loved one, or if your grief is self-destructive mourning that makes you wonder if you'll ever hang on with your fingertips. It's not the outcome of faith. It's that you had faith in Jesus. It's that you had faith in Jesus. It's not that your suffering shone Jesus so beautifully to others or whether your suffering was the most horrendous thing that you sometimes felt like cursing God for it, but that you had faith in Jesus in your suffering. It is not the outcome. It's that you had faith. It's not whether you are like those in sentence 34 who escape the edge of the sword or whether you are like those in sentence 37 who are killed by the sword. You are all commended because it is faith. Because God never promised you an easy life. God never promised you as an individual soldier would survive the battle. He simply calls you as a soldier to follow him. He doesn't promise what the outcome will be. He commends you simply for going into the war. He doesn't promise what the outcome of your parenting will be. He commends you for going into the war of parenting with Jesus on your side. He doesn't say that actually it's how you handle your singleness, whether you find singleness deeply contenting and seek Jesus as your wonderful husband always, or whether singleness is a curse and a bane that you struggle with every single day. It's that you had faith in Jesus in the midst of it, that you fought the battle for him. That is what he commends. And friends, that word commended there in sentence 39 is a beautiful word. Just give yourself a brain break for a moment. (laughs) It's a beautiful word. It's the word for treasured. It's the word for precious. It's the word for something that just has your heart in a way no one else can understand. The closest illustration I have for this is when I think back to my sister. She's now 37, but when she was a, a young child and I was an early teenager... She had a teddy bear that she loved and thought was amazing and thought was fantastic. We'd won it at a fair or something. It was one of these big teddies, about this big, beautiful and fluffy and and round and taut and huggable when we first got it. But she loved it so much that every night she would lay on it. She'd sleep on her front. Shelley, my sister, has Down syndrome and has like all these mega flexible joints. And she'd choose the most uncomfortable way of sleeping, it looked like. And she'd sleep flat on her front like this on top of the Ted, right? And over the years, and we're talking the best part of a decade, we began to call this Teddy Flat Ted, okay? Because over the years, it got thinner and thinner and thinner and more dense and rigid. Until finally, me and my brother, as is the warrant of older brothers, we decided to measure it, and it had become one and a half centimetres, perfectly flat, spirit level flat, one and, a, and you couldn't bend it. It was like cardboard, because all the inners had stretched out. And no doubt, because my sister sweated on it as she slept, it kind of imbibed her aroma and smell. It was rank. One eye was missing. In fact, one arm had been um, cannibalised from another teddy, because the dog got hold of it and ripped his arm off. And so one arm was slightly different colour. That arm was still quite fluffy, just kind of sticking out, this fluffy arm and this perfectly flat, rigid Ted, flat Ted. But my sister loved this teddy. She treasured it. She would not go anywhere without it. She would sleep on it regularly. It still exists in her little flat. She doesn't sleep with it anymore. It's up on top of a cupboard, this flat Ted. Looks like a cardboard cutout sitting up top there. 
I mean, so much so that my brother and I understood how much she valued it. And one time when she was being bullied and someone was trying to take this teddy away, for the one and only time that I remember my brother and I going in a fight on the same side, you know, uh, uh, against someone else, was when this lad tried to take this teddy. And we came in to defend the teddy and my sister. That's the word of how God views faith. I don't know what you think your singleness feels like. Flathead singleness? You'd never show it off. You never want it spoken about. Your parenting, your, your generosity with money, your battle against that habitual sin feels like flathead. Your handling of grief, of suffering, of pain, it feels like flathead. But you're saying, I'm trying, Jesus. Then he treasures you. He treasures you. He delights in you. He finds you precious. The third and final sentence I want us to land on out of this is, again, right there at the end, sentence 39 to 40. This is how it finishes. It says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Not even those who escaped the edge of the sword and inherited kingdoms. They didn't receive the promise. None had received what God had promised, even the victorious ones. Hey, hey, hey. Even those parents whose kids all follow Jesus, they haven't even got everything that was promised. Even that, that single guy who just is, is really pleased to be single, he hasn't got what Jesus promised. The, the Audi and the BMW on the driveway, you have so not got what Jesus promised. None of them, none of us, have what Jesus had promised since God had planned something better for us all, so that only together with us all would they be perfect. What he's alluding to is the whole of Hebrews chapters 1 to 10, that the great promise of God is that Jesus has bought our eternity. That actually that is safe. That's the only time the word safe should be described and used in the Christian vocabulary, is about eternity. That is safe. That's what he's promised. And so now, if that is safe... That means we can live dangerously, doesn't it? The Christian life was never meant to be safe. The Christian life was never meant to be keeping everything together. The Christian life was never meant to be making sure that the boat is not rocked. The Christian life was meant to be the releasing of wolves, not the creation of pugs. Do you see? So I'm going, Alex, how did you become a pug? How did I become a pug? When I'm meant to be released to be a wolf, I need to remember the promise of Jesus that he has done it all. John 19, verse 30, as Jesus dies on the cross with his last breath, they hold that sponge to his mouth. Do you remember that? It's not an act of mercy as he's dying, a sponge on a stick. That was how they used to wipe the anuses of the aristocrats. A slave would wipe it across their anus. They lift it to Jesus, use toilet roll. And with his last breath after that moment in John 19, verse 30, do you know what he says? Can you remember? It is finished. It is finished. Your future is certain. It is purchased. It cannot be taken away. Everything that really matters is safe. That is the promise. Everything that really matters is safe. So we can be dangerous. So we can actually be the normal followers, which are described in Hebrews 11, untamed so what is it for you? Is it, one, the reminder that you need to hold on in your hidden battle? 
that most of serving Jesus is hidden and unknown, and we do not have time to talk about it, but Jesus commends it all. Hold on in that hidden battle. He commends you for it. You feel like a soldier who is slain on the battlefield. That is for some of us. He will still achieve his purpose, but not every soldier will be victorious. Not every soldier will be victorious. Are you clear about that? Not every soldier will be victorious. There is no promise that your marriage, your parenting, your singleness, your money, your career, and your health will be victorious. Quite the opposite. Some of us will die. But hold on in the hidden battle because he delights in that. He treasures that. Where you feel flat, Ted, he delights in that. The future is certain, so hold on now in the hidden. Or secondly, is the application for you to live dangerously? (laughs) Imagine Jesus saying, Alex, I made you a wolf. You live like a pug. Alex, I made you a wolf. And you lived like a pug. Got nothing against pugs. But you know what I'm saying. So maybe that's the application for you. Live dangerously because all is well. The future is certain. All is well. So live dangerously. Die well. Fear not. Run wild. Shall I pray for us? Jesus, I long that we might serve you better. I long that I might serve you better. I long that I will escape the draw and attraction of a sedated life, a diluted and domesticated following of Jesus. And instead, by your Holy Spirit, embrace the fullness of what it means to have faith in Jesus incomprehensible, inconceivable, untamable, unrestrained, if he says it, I do it living. And that can only be the work of your Holy Spirit. So we lift ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The band are going to lead us in a song, but before, or a couple of songs maybe. Before they do, let's dare to share. <laughs> yeah? I know it's tough, isn't it? Okay, now if you don't want to talk to anyone, that's fine. Just send them the signal. That's absolutely fine. But we don't want to just be listeners. We want to be doers. So would you turn to someone, either you've come with them or someone nearby, or you can come to talk to Kev. Kevin's on his own, so don't leave Kevin on his own. Come and talk to Kevin, right? And dare to share. Okay, where, where have you become a pug? Okay? Where are you pug living, not wolf living? Like, where have you become tame, status quo? safe and how are you going to become the wolf how you become untamable there go on you've got just two minutes go on two minutes